anybody know somebody called Nehemiah? It's a boy's name. Angie does. Not a very common name. I suspect in the Jewish community it's more common. Nehemiah was a man. There's a book in the Bible in the Old Testament named after him, and that's where we are going. So we have got 12 sermons on the book of Nehemiah coming up over the, the next weeks. There's a couple of breaks for one of, one-off events that's taking us right up to the end of November. And my job today is to help us understand a bit about the context of Nehemiah, where it is in the story of the Bible. Uh, what's going to happen there is not so much what I'm going to talk about. I might allude to that, but I don't want to nick the, you know, the preacher's material for the next 12 weeks. But what I've been asked to do today is to set the scene for us so that when we come to Nehemiah next week and in the coming weeks, we've got a little bit more of an idea of what we're doing there and what we might be learning from it and things to bear in mind. So hopefully we'll get there. Um, and you'll go away with a bit more understanding of an idea, and we'll be learning some things together. Now, one of the interesting things about Nehemiah is uh, it comes directly after another book in the Bible by the name of Ezra, another relatively unusual man's name in our community. Ezra and Nehemiah, the two books that run together in our, in our Bibles, were originally one book. So when they were written, they were written as one book by one person, why somebody thought they'd split them up, I don't know. But anyway, so for the context and for the purpose of today, I'm going to talk a little bit about Ezra and Nehemiah as if it were still one book. When we get to next week and we dive into chapter one, we'll be in Nehemiah then. Okay, so, so that's the first thing to know about Nehemiah. The second thing is that although in your Bible, you may not know this, if you've been a Christian if you've only been a Christian the last few years and you've always read your Bible on your phone, you might not even know where Nehemiah is because we don't tend to know so much now, do we? We just kind of scroll down and press the button. If a paper Bible, you would know it's actually somewhere quite early on in the whole of your Bible, but it actually tells the story of the Old Testament right at the end of its history, if you will. So it's like, it's like the closing curtain on Old Testament story. So when we get to the end of Nehemiah, as we will at the end of November... What we get to then is, if you like, it's the end of that part of the story of God's people and of God's work in the world. The Old Testament narrative kind of comes to an end. And then we have a gap of several hundred years before Jesus turns up on the scene and the New Testament. So I was thinking about um, how to put this episode of history in context. And I was thinking about how... um, you might, sometimes people draw timelines, you know, you have a, a line and you put dates on it and put context, this is when this happened and this is when this happened and here are some contemporaneous people and events to make it interesting. Well, I was thinking about the history of the Bible as like a, a person's lifetime and I was thinking about my life and your life and our life and how, we've already actually had this alluded to, how very much life takes uh, ups and downs doesn't it and there are highs and lows and you might think about your individual life and hopefully when you were born that was a high point you know that you came onto the earth that's a high point you might be thinking of high points of things like um, things to do with career or family great memories great holidays Uh, you might think of low points in your life of um, bereavement or ill health you know we go through ups and downs right we have highs and we have lows. I can think of lots of those in my life. Uh, and in the, in the story of the Bible, what we have is not so much a story about individuals. The Bible primarily is not really about individuals. It's about a group. It's about a people. 
It's about a community where God is the focus. But, but to look at the life of the people of God, we will, ultimately, if you read the Bible, see lots of highs and lows. There's loads of high points, there's loads of low points. And to just to get us up to the point of Ezra and Nehemiah, and to give you a little bit more idea when we crack into the book next week, I just thought about the family of God like this. And in the Old Testament, God takes for himself a people and they're a nation. He makes them a nation, Israel. And they are the, the receivers of the blessing of God. They receive blessing. He calls them out in order to show himself to the world, in order to show his blessing and his favour. And that's their identity. I think for us that's sometimes hard to grasp because we have a very individualistic identity in this culture, certainly. Whereas for them, their identity was absolutely rooted in who they were in God. And what I've done is I've just done a little survey, and it's not exhaustive by any means, of some of the things that marked out the people of God in the Old Testament by looking at some of the promises that God gave them. So this people, this Old Testament people of God, Israel, have received blessings. Now, I've done a few, because otherwise we'd be here all day. There are lots, lots more. But let's just quickly look. So blessing. God has said to, the, to Israel, and he said this to Abraham in Genesis, I will bless you and make your name great. There's the promise of victory. Now this, this uh, quote, he will crush your head, doesn't sound like victory, does it? That's because God says that to the serpent in the Garden of Eden when he um, puts temptation in the way of Adam and Eve and leads them astray. God then says to the serpent who represents the <laughs> devil and sin and evil, he says there's one coming who will crush your head and victory will be yours. Presence, I will take you to be my people, I'll be your God. God himself says to his people, this is a quote from Exodus to Moses, I'm going to come and be among my people. The very God of heaven. He says that you're going to be mine and I'm going to be yours. I'm going to dwell among you. There's a promise to the people of Israel of descendants, of fruitfulness. He says to Abraham, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth said to a man who had no children and was very old. Israel carry these promises. Land, he promised Abraham, all the land you see, he's standing there, he says, I'll give it to you and your offspring forever. The land was a promise they held dear. We already heard about the Exodus this morning. The people of Israel were in slavery. In Egypt, they were brought out, promised the land, the promised land, the promised land. It runs through so much of Old Testament, doesn't it? It's what they're longing for. It's what they're looking for. It's part of their inheritance. They finally get there. Other nations blessed. This is a promise of God to the people he chose. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And there's a promise of the new covenant. He says in Jeremiah, I will write my law on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's a really quick survey of some sense of the promises of God over this special people that he has called and that's who they are. That's their identity. They carry those promises. But by the time we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, the important thing to know is that that feels like a lot of that has changed. So what happens next? Well, what happens next in our quick survey of the Old Testament is prophets come along. Uh, like Isaiah, we've already heard a bit about Isaiah this morning, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and they start saying, God is not pleased with the way you have behaved. God is not pleased with the way you have treated those promises. 
And Isaiah and Jeremiah start prophesying some pretty tough stuff to Israel. And in fact, what we read, if we go and read through Isaiah particularly, is God says, do you know what? There's, gonna, there's a time coming when you are going to experience captivity again, people. This is going to be your lot again. I imagine for the people who, had, who remembered Egypt, who celebrated Passover, who t- they told the story among themselves over and over again when God delivered us from Egypt, when God parted the Red Sea, when God brought us out, when God gave us the land. That's their history and that's their identity. And God says through Isaiah and Jeremiah, he said, you're going to go into captivity again. There's going to be a time of exile again. And that's what happens. If you know your Old Testament history, that's what happens. Great empires of the time, Assyria and Babylon, they conquer Israel. It's a disaster. Talk about low point in your life. The, the shame, the ignominy, the defeat. It's a disaster in the lifetime of the people of God. They've not learned, if you like, those lessons of their past, although they've told them over and over. And in fact, they get taken into captivity. Jerusalem is devastated in about 586 BC. This happens, if you're interested. So nearly 600 years before Jesus we're talking about here, this happens. We're at a really low point. And the reason I go through all that is because when we come to what we're going to be looking at in Ezra and Nehemiah, they are a people who have been exiled. They're at a low point in their history. Things are not good. Just quickly, those promises that we just looked at. If you think about how it felt for them, okay, blessing. (laughs) There's not much blessing. These guys experienced curse and defeat at the hands of Babylon, this great empire. Where's the victory? They've been conquered. They've been humiliated. The presence of God, such a key theme in the life of the people of God, this idea that God himself was among them, central The temple, if you read in the Old Testament the instructions for how the temple was to be built, incredibly detailed, extravagant place for God to be, for worship to take place. But there is is no temple at this point. Jerusalem is devastated, the temple is ransacked, a people are living in a foreign land with no temple. For them, I imagine that's one of the most devastating parts of the exile. Descendants, your descendants like the dust of the earth. Multiple military defeats mean that the descendants of Israel are in decline. Can you see the, just the, the situation that they're in now? Land, the land, well, they're not in the land anymore. The land that was such a motif for them in the early part of their life. You remember the story of the Exodus, and then they spend four decades in the wilderness waiting to get into the promised land, the, the great promised land. And they finally get there, Joshua, they cross over. But now they've been, they've been captured again. They no longer have the land. The land is actually being inhabited by all sorts of nations who are doing all sorts of things, worshipping other gods. Nations blessed. How can we be a blessing to the nations? There's no power or influence anymore. And a new covenant, I wonder... They're still waiting. Jeremiah, that promise of a new covenant that God would write on their very hearts, they're still waiting. I wonder what they thought of that. They're in a pretty dire place. I hope you can see. They're in exile. But we come to Ezra and Nehemiah because, as you'll be glad to know, that's not the end of the story. 
And we all know that, and that's why we're here. Thankfully, the story doesn't end here. And one of the things we've actually heard a little bit come out this morning already is about God's plans, God's purposes. Uh, Steve Lee just alluded to, we know God has a plan. We know things, seasons, buildings, people change, but God's plans don't. And so when we see those promises of God that he had made, we know with certainty that they're not dead in the water because God has a plan and he will always achieve it. Amen? Amen. So Isaiah, again, let's get a bit of Bible in here rather than my uh, musings. Flicker's not working. Okay. So Isaiah again, the prophet Isaiah. Yes, he said there will be an exile, but listen to what he also said. I am the Lord who has made all things. God speaking through the prophet. I, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built. And of their ruins, something else. (laughs) Anybody know? I will restore them. This is a key point. Isaiah the prophet is writing in 700 and something BC. Okay? But God is saying at this point, yes... There is a consequence. There will be exile. There will be judgment. There will be devastation. You will feel like the promises have gone. But, but it will not last. I will restore, he says. And then this, this is God, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Isaiah, long in advance, a couple of hundred years in advance of what we're looking at today, has prophesied there will be exile, but for a time, and then there will be a restoration and a return. And he mentions this guy called Cyrus. Which brings us on to the beginning of Ezra, the beginning of this Ezra-Nehemiah book, which starts like this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah and Isaiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. He's got quite a big head, right? Uh, He's not quite got got it right. But any of the people among you may go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. So just to get this straight, Isaiah has prophesied a couple of hundred years before there will be a return to Jerusalem and he's mentioned a guy called Cyrus. Here we are, 200 years later or so, funnily enough, there's a king called Cyrus. He's a Persian because Persia has just beaten Babylon. Babylon is no longer the big cheese. Persia is now the empire in control. But Cyrus, moved by God, has said, Jews, you can go back to Jerusalem. You you need to go back and rebuild the temple. And from this point, we see, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see a pattern. It's an interesting pattern. And there are three guys who go back and take 
the people of Israel back with them to rebuild and restore in God's plan. They are, so Cyrus, the king, sends back a guy called Zerubbabel with a load of people. Somebody once said to me, um, the, the name Zerubbabel sounds like um, a French person saying the rubber ball. <laughs> Try it. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Anyway, that's it now, you've got that. Zerubbabel goes back, Cyrus sends him back with a load of people. Then we have another king called Artaxerxes who sends back a guy called Ezra with a load more exiles. And then we come to our hero, Nehemiah, and Artaxerxes is also the Persian king who says, you may go back and take with you exiles to rebuild. And what we see here that's fantastic is in every case we have a foreign king, he's not an Israelite, God uses these foreign kings these powerful men. He uses them in his purposes and his plans to bring about his plan to restore Israel in their land, to restore the temple, to restore the presence of God where where they should be. He uses a foreign king, a powerful king. He uses an Israelite who is known to the king. In our case, Nehemiah is a man who is, he's an Israelite, but he's important in the kingdom, in the court of Persia. He's close to the king. So God uses that and he sends back um, thousands on, in every wave of the exile go back to rebuild. We have Zerubbabel who goes back to build the temple, the most important thing for them, the centre of God's presence and of worship. We have Ezra who goes back and wants to reinstate the love for the, the law, for the word of God. And then we get to Nehemiah, our guy, who goes back to rebuild. Who knows what he goes back to rebuild? the walls of the city, to rebuild the city. And what we've got here is three guys. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, it's not very long. I suggest you go home and just read the thing, read the whole thing together. What we have is three men who are passionate to restore the name of God, their city, their land, their temple, who are passionate to restore in their people an honour, a commitment to godly living and a commitment to God. Three men who go back. And over the, that, that process, you can read it in quite a short time, but it actually covers, spans over 100 years, the, the time. And God's purposes, we see, ah, he knew how he was going to do that. He knew how that was going to be restored. He knew all along. God always knows what the plan is. And I love the way he, he just, Isaiah just puts the name of a guy in who's not even born yet who's going to be the one who starts the return. Don't you love that? God's purposes through the whole thing never fail, and the promises are never dead in the water. And so we see these three guys, they're passionate about restoring God's fame and honour. They're passionate about the people living as those who are carriers of promise, which is what has really gone wrong. They're passionate about that. And as we look in Nehemiah, and we're going to be looking, as I say, over 12 Weeks, which is exciting. I love really getting into a book of the Bible. You're really going to get to know Nehemiah, the book. It's really good, and we're going to learn loads of things because there's lots of lessons in Nehemiah about um, about building together, about community, about using our strengths together to be stronger. There's lots of lessons about prayer. Uh, there's lots of lessons actually about how you deal with discouragement and opposition. There's going to be loads of stuff in there which we're going to find helpful to us and applicable to us. And what we're going to find at the end of Nehemiah, as I say, is that I'm not giving away the game. I mean, obviously, you know, hopefully you're going to read it this afternoon anyway. So 
At the end of Nehemiah, you're going to find a restored people and a rebuilt city and a temple. And lots of things have got better. The exiles have returned. God has restored them like he promised he would. But actually, here's a little bit of insider info. What you're going to find at the end of Nehemiah is that all of those things have happened, but the people really are just the same. That the people are just the same. And some people put it like this. It's, it's like the exile is over, the people have returned, but the exile continues in their hearts. There's still problems, there's still rebellion, there's still sin. And the reason for that, and this is one thing we need to just bear in mind whenever we read the Bible, but in Nehemiah, is because, you know, these three guys come along and they're great leaders and the people rally and the people all get stuck in and they all play their part. And great things are achieved. But at the end of Nehemiah, you just realise, it's left you thinking, oh, we just, we're still waiting. We're still waiting. This is the end, if you like, the curtain comes down on the Old Testament history. There's a gap of quiet for over 400 years before we come to John the Baptist being born and Jesus. And we come to the end of it and we we realise, oh, we have to keep reading. We have to keep reading because what the people didn't need was another great leader. What they needed was a saviour. What they needed was a saviour. When Jeremiah said, God promises, I'm actually going to write my law on your hearts, not just on on scrolls and on tablets of stone. I'm going to write my law on your hearts. You're going to be mine and I'm going to be yours. They're waiting. They're still waiting. And the reason they're still waiting, we know, is because all those things find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And so as we look at Nehemiah, it's important to remember that this is not just history of a, an ancient Near Eastern people that we don't, yeah, it's kind of, if that floats your boat, great, if not really my thing. No, this is our history. You know, the Bible is our story. And, and our, um, it's, it's part of us, and we are part of it. And so I hope that in that you're just going to find it exciting just to watch the unfolding of God's plans and promises. Because ultimately, every one of the blessings that we looked at at the beginning are fulfilled in the work and person of Christ. They're all pointing to him. They're meant to point to him. That's what the Bible does all the way through. It points to Christ. And so the despair of the exile where we come in with Ezra and Nehemiah is a pretty dire point in the history of the people of God. It's our history. That's part of our history. The exodus, the wonderful freedom from captivity is part of our history. We, we, we go through this, if you like, with Israel. As we read it, this is part of our story. We are the people of God. And Abraham, as Paul says very clearly in his letters, we are now the children of Abraham by promise, by dint of the fact, not that we've kept the law, but by dint of the fact that we are in Christ. And so we're going to look through this book. Some of you will have never heard of it till today, and some of you won't have read it before, but it's going to encourage us, it's going to teach us some things. And in all of it, just remember always pointing to Jesus who fulfills all of those promises and it's good right because we get to the end of Nehemiah and we realize yeah there's there's some hope the people of God are in a dire position we get to this point in the Bible and there's a kind of rising hope it's like oh oh there's oh they're coming back there's restoration there's return there's hope again maybe there's glory again there's a temple again but it will only be partial 
until that 400-year period has passed, and boom, we get John the Baptist being born, and that then points to Jesus coming along. I don't know if I can read that, so I'm going to have to turn. Oh, I can, actually, yeah. This is a quote from one of the books we've got knocking around in the office about Nehemiah, a lady called Kathleen Nielsen, and it says this, as Nehemiah re-establishes this remnant, this small, you know, leftover, if you will, of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, restoring the temple worship with its priests and sacrifices, we cannot help but look ahead to Christ, our great high priest, who by means of his own blood secured for us an eternal redemption. The temple and priests point us forward to the one in whom we can draw near to God through the sacrifice on our behalf. And as the curtain closes on Old Testament history, Nehemiah points us right to Jesus. So I'm out of time. It's 12 o'clock. We're going to go get our kids in a sec. But please do go away and read Ezra and Nehemiah if, if you've got the... It doesn't take long. And next week, uh, Chris is starting the series, actually, right at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. We're going to work through it together. It's going to be a book, I really believe, God has spoken to us. We're preaching this series because some prophetic senses came from others about it. It's going to help us. It's going to teach us. It's going to challenge us. And all the time, it's going to point us to Jesus, because that's what Scripture does. Amen? Amen. Just as we close, um, if, you, if you are not, if I can put it like this, if you're not a Christian, if you're not part of the people of God, if you know that that great hope that we talked about in Christ, you don't know what that is, then Alpha is a really great way to say, hold on, what are you talking about? I have these questions. Uh, Paul mentioned it earlier. We've got some flyers over here. Equally, any of us here would be really happy just to chat to you and answer any questions today as well. If you'd like prayer today for anything, um, if you're sick, unwell, going through a difficult situation, anything you would like prayer for, please do come to this corner here. There'll be some people who can pray with you as we go. And we're just going to pray and then we'll go and get the kids. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that every time we dip into the Bible, we find hope and we find uh, the, the rising light of Christ himself, our hope. Lord, I thank you that um, in all of history, you have had your hand on, on your purposes and promises. They are always good for fulfillment, Lord. Thank you. Your promises never fade. Your hope, your light never goes out. Lord, I thank you so much. And we thank you that together you're going to teach us much through Nehemiah. Lord, we give ourselves to all that you want to show us and teach us at City Hope Church. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the richness of life in your body. I thank you, Lord, that your story is about a people for yourself and that we are those people. Lord, thank you for your blessing on us. Thank you for opening our eyes to your wonderful light. And we just pray a great blessing today on City Hope Church as we go, especially on the Lees as they move on. Lord, bless them, Lord, and do them good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.